Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. It's harder to focus than ever these days. Thankfully, C4 has reinvented the energy drink game with C4 Smart Energy, the only energy drink clinically proven to provide enhanced mental focus, containing 200 milligram of natural caffeine, a blend of vitamins and zero sugar. It was formulated to support your well-being and help you feel your best, all while enhancing mental focus. From your brain to your body, C4 Smart Energy does it all and tastes amazing. Look for Smart Energy in the beverage aisle at your local Kroger, Albertsons, and Safeway grocery stores. C4 Smart Energy. Stay focused. This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News Travel Editor Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here with another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. This week, from Kigali, the capital of Rwanda, where the World Travel and Tourism Council, effectively the G20 of travel, convened for their annual global summit. The reason? To discuss the cutting-edge issues of travel. Joining me, James Thornton, the CEO of Intrepid Travel, on over-tourism as well as responsible tourism. Two big topics. Then... Another global travel issue that needs more attention, travel with disabilities. John Sage, the CEO of Sage Inclusion, on the accessibility challenges within the travel industry and some quick and simple solutions that need to be done. They're non-negotiable. And then a conversation with John Wigger, the author of a fascinating book that deals with a wild and weird chapter of U.S. history. The Hijacking of American Airlines Flight 119, How D.B. Cooper Inspired a Skyjacking Craze, and the FBI's Battle to Stop It. First up, James Thornton. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx Service Guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. It's 3 o'clock somewhere. Time for a My Mochi ice cream snack. My Mochi ice cream is cool, creamy scoops of premium ice cream wrapped in sweet, pillowy dough. And get this. 
all of My Mochi's fabulous flavors like strawberry, mango, double chocolate, and cookies and cream are only around 80 calories per piece. Talk about a guilt-free, indulgent experience. Each box of My Mochi ice cream has six perfectly portioned gluten-free mochis that are great for grab-and-go. So feel good while curbing your afternoon cravings or the midnight munchies. Yeah, you know who you are with the joyfully chill sensation of My Mochi ice cream. Find My Mochi ice cream at Target or visit MyMochi.com to locate a grocery store near you. As some of you know, many, many years ago, actually not that many years ago, about six years ago, we, we were here filming our one-hour special as part of our continuing global television specials called The Royal Tour with the President Paul Kagame. And, and as part of that show, he took me up to the 9,000-foot level uh, of their national park. We went trekking to see the incredible mountain gorillas. It was amazing. And of course, I had to come back and do it again. I did it this week. But there's another reason why I did it, because Rwanda tends to be a role model, at least in this area, of responsible tourism. They've done a lot of other things here in Rwanda. You know, you can't get off the airplane carrying any plastic bags. They'll take them from you. They've banned them. Uh, this is this is one of the cleanest countries you'll ever see. Uh, every week, all the residents in every place in Rwanda come out and clean their streets. You don't see any litter anywhere. Um, it's 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 a remarkable country. But remember, over tourism has always been on the agenda. Uh, before the pandemic, I was worried about it not being on the agenda after, but it's back because a lot of people didn't learn their lessons. This country apparently has. Uh, you've got a, a population that. Of, of, of mountain gorillas that um, was shrinking, uh, that they wanted to protect and preserve. And at the same time, interest in visiting them has never been higher. And uh, joining me now, the chief executive officer of Intrepid Travel, James Thornton, when I was up on the, on the mountain yesterday, you were on the mountain right before me. But it wasn't like tour buses at the Acropolis. It wasn't like, you know, everybody waiting to get into the Colosseum in Rome this is managed very, very well in terms of protecting these animals. Yeah, isn't it one of those beautiful, iconic experiences, Peter? You saw it yesterday getting face-to-face with a mountain gorilla, but going to an iconic travel experience and not being completely overwhelmed by the crowds that you see before you. And you turn up in the car park, it's very well organised, um, it's very clean, the groups are separated, uh, you head off with your local expert guide and leader and porters, and you have a, a most wonderful real-life experience coming face-to-face with the iconic mountain gorilla. And no crowds. And no crowds. You see, it's interesting. Uh, this past summer, I'm sure you're aware of this, you had, a, on average, 30,000 people a day walking up the Acropolis in 100-degree-plus weather every single day. And ha- how did the Greek government say they were going to handle it? Oh, we're now going to just limit it to 20,000 people a day. Even that is ridiculous. Yeah, hot, expensive. Right. And people were passing out. It's yeah. like, that's not an experience I particularly want to have. I don't think one that you want to have or your clients. Uh, so here's a country that basically came in from day one saying, okay, uh, we don't care how many people want to come. We're going to tell you how many people can be allowed to come. Mm. And it's going to be a manageable number that really protects the natural resources, the gorillas, mm. right, in their natural habitat. So they're, they're issuing very, very few permits. Uh, you can only go in a group of like eight. Uh, you're only given basically an hour to have that experience. Um, and by the way, in, if you're lucky enough to have it, an hour is pretty intense because as you experienced yesterday, I mean, these animals are up close and personal with you. 
Yeah. And I think what's amazing, Peter, is when you turn up, the leader and guides who take you up in those small group of eight, the first thing they say to you is almost thank you for coming and thank you for contributing to your role in conservation in this beautiful country and for protecting the mountain gorilla population. And that was installed really early, right at the start, wasn't it, when we started yeah. the walk. You are playing an iconic role in preserving the conservation of the mountain gorilla. And as a result, we got told that the average uh, lifespan of a gorilla is typically 35 to 45, but they've now got a female who's up to 48. And part of that is the role that tourism has played in conservation in the region. You know, if you go back 25 years, this place was, was, was completely crowded with poachers. Um, the, the actual natural habitat was being reduced. Uh, they were running out of their own resources. And what the government did was to basically say, okay, let's change the entire business model of tourism here in the country so that you get to follow the money, so that the money that people pay by the way, it's not an inexpensive proposition. Let's be real about this. Everybody's paying between, what, $1,500 and up yeah. to get to have that experience. So if it's on your bucket list, you better save up, right? And I think that's the key point, though, isn't it, Peter? It's, if it's on your bucket list, spend, save up for this great opportunity because it is the way the Rwandan government have, have fixed the solution. It's $1,500 US for that one-hour experience. So you, you can't just, not anyone can just turn up and, and rock up and do it. So you've got to make that saving. It is that financial contribution. But doesn't that make travel a more beautiful thing when you've really worked hard to go and then have that unique experience? But it's also where the money goes, and that's the key. First of all, half the rangers right now, people don't realize, are former poachers. They had to be re-educated to be able to understand that the animals were worth more alive than dead. That's number one. Number two, it's a government rule. I don't know what the percentage is. I think it may be 10%. That every dollar that you spend, right, 10% of that goes back to the local communities in the form, it creates jobs. It creates lifestyle. It elevates people. Um, and all of a sudden, everybody is now invested. As, as one of the trackers said to me yesterday, this is going to sound strange, he said, but the poachers are now our partners in preserving this area. And they're actually increasing the, the size of the national park. How do you, whoever heard of that? <laughs> it feels like tourism done right, doesn't it? And we yeah. can't say that too often with the many wonderful travel experiences that are out there, but Rwanda really does feel like it's got it right as a destination. Like you say, this misconception of what a, a country might be, it's clean, it's comfortable, it's secure, the airport's lovely. Um, the way in which that gorilla experience, the most iconic element of the country is being managed is sensational. And it really feels like other destinations need to take the learning from, from Rwanda. Okay, so give me, I'm going to give you a devil's advocate question now. <laughs> and that is, everything sounds well and good, mm. but the double-edged sword here is, aren't you then making this particular experience only for the people who have money? You, you, you may travel elitist. The one thing I'd say, Peter, is to even fly to a destination like Rwanda, it's going to cost a couple of thousand dollars. So, yeah, it's, um, it's another um, wise investment in terms of the $1,500 to come and do the gorillas. There are alternatives. You know, you can go and have the experience in Uganda where it is um, a cheaper price point. But I feel that travel is there to be savoured. And I think saving up, flying to a destination costs a certain amount of money. The, the time spent in a destination costs a certain amount of money. And I think the, um, the gorilla experience, yes, it is expensive, but um, saved for. And, and it really then goes away as one of those most iconic um, lifetime experiences. So there are, But there are, are alternatives if you want to do it in a cheaper format in another destination. And of course, 
for those people, and there are so many of them that I know as travelers who want to come back with bragging rights, uh, this is one of those bucket item list things you got. You get to hold over all your friends. Well, you and I get to travel a lot, don't we, Peter? And uh, I, I still say it is one of the most iconic experiences I've ever done. Did it first time 13 years ago and being face-to-face with the silverback yesterday when it was beating its chest. Uh, literally, still got, literally still got, beating its chest. Still got hairs um, standing on the back of my neck from the experience. And how close were you? Oh, Virtually touching distance. Yeah. I mean, you literally are touching distance. It's, it's amazing. It, it truly is. But let's shift gears for a second because Rwanda is a good role model of responsible destination management. We, we, we can see that. Where are the other challenges for you operating as you do all around the world? Yeah, look, at the moment, obviously, there's, there's always geopolitical challenges. There's alignment between private sector and governments, which um, often don't quite align. There's that demand of over-tourism, which we thought would not uh, crop up in a post-pandemic environment, but seemingly... But it we did saw, even worse. Well, we saw in Europe this summer, didn't we? I was in Rome myself, and, um, you know, being at the Colosseum, being at the Trevi Fountain, just the crowds, the heat, the expense. I like it wasn't to say a great that experience. It, I like to say in Venice, the bridge of size is the bridge of thighs. Yeah, absolutely, you know? absolutely. And, I mean, and you know, we can make jokes about it, but, you know, when you see the, the city officials in Venice wanting to put in a tax for people who just didn't want to come into, into St. Mark's Square, or you see everybody say, I don't want to be another Barcelona, I don't want to be another Venice. I mean, are there, are there practical solutions without disenfranchising people from trying to have that experience? There seems like a complete, there does seem like a misalignment between the local experience and the consumer experience into a destination. I think Amsterdam's a, a, a destination that's starting to get it right. The way I always say what gets incentivized gets done. And the way the Amsterdam Tourism Board is now leading its kind of key goal, it's about... Uh, community engagement and consumer engagement in a destination rather than volume of visitors. And I think we've got to get away from this growth at all costs. You know, I'm going to give you the the, the travel industry uh, metric, which I think is flawed. I think you'd agree. If you met, we here at at the WTTC at this meeting, we're going to be meeting with a lot of ministers of tourism who seem to believe that their key to success is a numbers game, right? Average length of stay, average length of spend, blah, blah. But it, it shouldn't be that way. No. Because it destroys the quality of travel. Yeah, it's got to be about the engagement of both the consumer experience who are paying for the uh, going to a destination, but critically about the local community experience as well. And we can see places where it's gone wrong at times. What destinations that you work with other than Rwanda are getting it right? Uh, I think a destination like Costa Rica has always been a leader, Peter, in terms of sustainable travel practices, about the engagement with local communities, the way in which the government has gone about building uh, more of a, an eco-tourism destination, um, the bonds that are now available in region and in market. Um, other countries that stand out for me, I think Morocco is a destination that's, that's done it pretty well as well. Um, I'm surprised to hear that. Yeah, no, I do. I, I think Morocco's found that that striking right balance in terms of advertising the destination, getting more people into, of course, the iconic sites of, of Marrakesh, but also then the development outside of Morocco in terms of Essaouira or to the Sahara or some of the other less known places like, like Fez and, and Meknes. So I think there are some hero destinations that we can stand up. I think Scandinavia is doing it, um, areas in Scandinavia are doing it well, but I think at the moment, you know, if you, anyone who travelled in the summer to southern Europe would question um, uh, some of the, the destinations in, in that region. And continue to question. Yeah, continue to question. It's expensive, it's hot. Um, and, and I have just, to tell you, I was on a, on a ship this summer, uh, was stopping in Mykonos and Santorini. I refused to get off the ship because it was, it was obvious to me that I couldn't walk 
when I got there. And I think if you're planning your travels now for next summer, for me, it's about off-season travel as much as possible. I think well, we're going to see I the May and June and September and October becoming more popular. Because one of the solutions that Greece came up with a couple of years ago is, oh, we'll just extend our season into October and November. But people don't think in those terms. They really don't. Although we're seeing this and you're seeing this now, seasonality is starting to evaporate. Uh, people are, it's no longer where are you going next summer, it's where are you going next week. But I think people that had those experiences last summer, like me, I was going to Sicily last week of July, fires surrounding Palermo and Catania airports, it's high 40s during the day, low That's 30s high 40s at night. Centigrade. Yeah, apologies for my Australianisms there. Um, and, and it's just, you know, I will be booking my travel this year in June and September. Now, I do understand school holidays limit that for some people. Ah, but you know what? I have the secret for that. <laughs> do what my parents did with me. Make a deal with your teachers to get an extra credit assignment and take a week off when, during the school year. Well, travel's the best form of education, Peter. Well, we know that. <laughs> but the thing is this. Uh, what's the week after Thanksgiving? It's the dead week. Nobody's traveling. And you know what? They're just recovering from their dysfunctional family get-together. That's when you go. That's or right. the week after New Year's, they're just recovering. That's when you travel. You know, do an off-season approach. First of all, you're not going to France for a suntan. I mean... Think about why you're really traveling somewhere, right? And then figure out when nobody else is going to go. That's when you want to go. Yeah. It's the secret of travel. Even Alaska in the winter or Palm Springs in the summer, I'll find a way to make it work. Uh, Which reminds me, the double-edged sword, of course, where you're dealing with GDP numbers in certain destinations that are totally reliant on travel and tourism, and they don't feel they have a choice. So, for example, Hawaii, right? Take a look at their GDP numbers for travel. It's through the roof. And that's, that's it, right? Then you have that terrible fire in Maui. And people know, well, should we go now? Can we go now? What do we, if we go, will we have a negative impact on the environment? What's the, way, what's the way to responsibly do that? Because you can, it doesn't take long to connect the dots that if you show up, somebody gets a job. If you show up, somebody gets to eat. They get to put food on the table. It's no different than going down the Nile in Egypt. If, if you don't show up, nobody eats, so where do you find that happy medium? Well, Morocco is the best example of that for me with the natural disaster of the earthquake that took place in September. And, you know, media coverage goes on that Morocco's had a massive earthquake and therefore people stay away from the whole country. But you know what, Marrakesh the reality, was... The reality was yeah. it was Marrakesh yeah. and it was the Atlas Mountains. And the Atlas Mountains was the devastation. I was in Marrakesh uh, two weeks ago. The city is operating perfectly normally um, and the restaurants are increasingly getting fuller, the airplanes are getting fuller and the hotels are getting fuller. So it's about education. When a, when a destination gets hit by a natural disaster clearly there are places you have to avoid the atlas mountains being that case but casablanca fez meknes the sahara essaouira open for business and and they rely on tourism to get back traveling so it's about taking that view of getting beyond the, the kind of key headline story and getting into the detail of where you can and can't travel we tend to be geographically ignorant and paint with a broad brush at the same time i mean you had western maui being devastated by that fire but the other islands weren't affected and the rest of Maui wasn't affected. And people, oh, I can't go to Hawaii. But actually, you can. You just have to do it responsibly. Pick up the phone. Call the hotel where you want to stay. And say, can you accept me? And, and, and what can I do to help when I get there? You don't want to displace. I mean, they're putting people up who are their own employees who lost their homes, right? So you don't want to displace them. But if they get to a certain point where they can take you, why wouldn't you go? Yeah, and it's, we're seeing the same, Peter, with the uh, terrible Middle Eastern conflict that's going on. Egypt, Jordan, destinations which our governments are telling us that we can get to safe and secure and rely on those tourism dollars. Um, it's about people still getting out and having those travel experiences because we have seen higher cancellations to those destinations at this stage. Let's go back to COVID days, right? The business shuts down. 
cruises all stop, airlines are canceling, people just have nowhere to go, tour operators can't get insurance, so they basically stop. But where's the money going, right? You had so many defaults, so many people got left holding the bag. You had a number of, of foreclosures, you had a number of, of bankruptcies and liquidations. I often felt that if we were doing this responsibly, right, that if I'm going to book a tour uh, or even an airline ticket, that the money should go into escrow and that the money only gets released to that operator, whether it's an airline, cruise line, hotel, tour operator, when I actually show up and the ship leaves or the airplane flies or the tour begins. You agree? I'm in complete agreement, Peter. I mean, you know, we saw, unfortunately, travel companies default who'd been living off client cash during the course of the years leading up to the pandemic with unsustainable growth levels. And I think those travel companies that... Uh, looked after their customers well, refunded the money as quickly as they could under very, very testing circumstances and have now come back and uh, are growing very strongly. It's it's requirement on them to only be uh, spending client cash when the client cash is ready for the travel experience. And it's absolutely critical. And travellers need to do their research, need to be speaking to their travel agent partner, getting on websites, checking out the financial stability of brands, which sounds a funny thing to do when you're thinking about the wonderlust of your travel experience, but, you but critical to, to do. Yeah. And companies like Intrepid that openly and transparently release their accounts every single year, you can go on our website, see exactly how we're trading and performing and knowing with confidence that your money is safe and secure when your travel plans happen or, in the worst case scenario, if travel plans get unstuck, that you're able to get your, your money back accordingly. And, of course, there's another side of the story in terms of risk from the credit card companies. Uh, I was talking to somebody at American Express who basically said, you know, if we, ten, if we look at a company we think they're not financed properly, we're going to do holdbacks. And what a holdback is, but the customer doesn't know it, right? The traveler doesn't know it. So I pay my deposit, my $2,000 deposit to American Express, uh, to, 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 char- to the company charging it on American Express, which is how we do it, or, or Visa or MasterCard, whatever that is. But they have no confidence in the operator. They tell the operator, we're holding it back until you actually operate. Well, if they're not properly financed to begin with, the operator never gets to the departure date. They default. Yeah. It almost creates a default. Yeah, again, Peter, I think it's about doing customers' research. I think uh, there's many review sites that are out there that very quickly, with a tap of a few keys, will provide you the information about, is this a company one that has honoured its terms and conditions? Is it a company that pays back in the events of problems or challenges? I I, I think it's incumbent on all of us to be doing our research and and booking and travelling with companies that have, have good track records. Of course, right now, specifically speaking of the Middle East, we're in a very grey area because... If you look at most travel insurance policies, uh, they don't cover you if there's an act of war. Well, Israel has declared war. So they're off the hook, right? The tour operators, in many cases, are saying, and we're not talking about tour operators in Israel. We're talking about tour operators in the region. They're saying, oh, our, our trip to the pyramids is still going. We haven't canceled, so we're not giving your money back. Now what do you do? Yeah, and again, I think it's incumbent on travel companies. Of course, travel companies want to keep operating for the reasons we talked about earlier, the benefit also into the local communities of people in Egypt and the tour operators there and the hoteliers and the transfer suppliers wanting to make sure they've got that form of income. But in Intrepid's case, we provided flexibility around our terms and conditions, giving people the option if they don't want to travel, they can take 100% travel credit and travel with us either to a different destination 
or back to those destinations at a different point. So again, it's back to the customer research, traveling with companies and booking with travel companies that have those more friendly terms and conditions. And of course, read the fine print on the insurance policies, which I cannot understand, you can't understand. So buy it through a travel agent, have them walk you through the hieroglyphics of that language so you know what you're covered for, but even better, what you're not covered for. Yeah, I often get a bit sus, Peter, with those kind of automatic uh, credit card insurance policies. There's a reason why you pay a bit of money for travel insurance. And personally, I think it can be some of the best investment you can make, but make sure you buy that right policy. And I've said this before, I, I, not only have I said it before, I've said it dozens of times. If you're going to book an airline ticket online, don't buy the insurance because they will not let you finish the transaction unless you opt in or opt out. Opt out. You can always buy the insurance from a third party when you understand what you're buying because, every, oh, yeah, I have peace of mind. Uh, I want to be protected. And, and the language in that on that online page makes you think, you're not, if you don't buy their insurance right there, you're not going to be protected. Just the opposite. In many cases, you buy that insurance and you're not protected because nobody gets to page five of the website at that point because you just wanted to complete the transaction. So do yourself a favor. I'm not opposed to travel insurance. Don't get me wrong. But don't buy it at that moment online. You buy, agree? buy it from a specialist, Peter. You buy your, your airline from a specialist airline, your tour operations from your specialist tour operator. Buy your insurance from a specialist insurance provider. My thanks to James. Now, it might surprise you to learn that 19% of the American public has a disability. It could be sight or hearing impairment or a mobility issue. No matter what the disability, the travel industry may still not be moving fast enough to literally accommodate the disabled traveler. John Sage from Sage Inclusion has lived that story. When it comes to picking the perfect treats for your dog, Stuart makes the choice easy by keeping it real. Real ingredients, real nutrients, real benefits. Stuart dog treats are free from additives, corn, soy, wheat, and grains. Plus, they're freeze-dried to lock in all the great nutrition and natural flavor your furry friend deserves. Stuart freeze-dried dog treats. Big, tail-wagging nutritional benefits. Available on Amazon.com today. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. John Sage, the CEO of Sage Inclusion. How are you, sir? I'm great. And Thanks good to see you again, me. by the way. Yeah. Uh, you heard my long-winded introduction, but the point remains that we're, you know, uh, cruise ships, there's another one for you. Uh, you know, we have the Americans with Disabilities Act, right? Uh, going back, what, 40 years, more or less. Uh, and yet the provisions for enforcement aren't very good. Um, and you'll see a cruise ship, for example, that may have ramped the interior of the ship. But if somebody, uh, if somebody wants to go ashore, the ports haven't done it. You know, you, you, you pull into some ports where you have literally, uh, you know, stairs to heaven, you know, and, you, and, 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 and how can you do that? I, I don't say, and I've said to cruise ship companies for years, why don't you in an ecumenical way just hold a press conference and say, effective immediately, we will no longer sail to the following ports until they make them accessible to all of our passengers. How fast would they have stonemasons out there <laughs> ramping those places, right, John? Correct. So tell me exactly how you're approaching this problem. 
Yeah, you're exactly right. There are accessibility challenges all throughout the, the travel industry. And as a result, there's this huge population that is either staying at home or not traveling as frequently as they would like to. And so there's a hum, huge amount of money that's on the, the sidelines for the, the travel industry. Um, and so, the, you know, I asked the question, why is that? I, I think a lot of the, the um, expertise in the uh, travel industry in terms of accessibility is lacking. That's one of the things that we're, we're helping. We're helping travel businesses and destinations um, with training and to understand this demographic better so that they can do a, a better job serving them. I've always said, and please feel free to laugh, that the people who design hotels have never slept in one and the people who fl- you know, build airports have never flown. So how do you get in there at the design level to say to them, look, when you're about to redo an airport or build a new hotel, this is what you need. There's a hotel in L.A., uh, out by LAX. It's, it's actually quite an old hotel now. It was the Holiday Inn Crown Plaza that they were, the owners said, you know what, we're going to do something different. We're going to bring in the, 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 the accessible community and ask them for their input before we actually finish the blueprints, right? Before you even pour concrete. What is it you need in the hotel, right? And you know what? It was probably the most accessible hotel ever, and nobody else followed the lead. I mean, you know, they had the, eye, the, the door eyepieces at wheelchair height. They had the right uh, lighting. They had the right audio alarms for people who had sight impairment or the right lighting for the people who had hearing impairment. And it's not difficult to do. No, it's not. And it's not expensive to do it on the front end. Uh, There's a a misconception that the Americans with Disabilities Act makes things accessible. And it really only covers the built environment. It does not cover furniture. And so a lot of the accessibility challenges that I encounter and, and disabled travelers encounter when you go into a hotel room is the furniture. So that could be the bed height. It could be the space under the bed to use something called a, a Hoyer lift that gets people from wheelchairs onto the bed. Uh, there could be chairs on obstructing the, the way to the lamp or to the curtains. The towels could be out of reach. There's all these things that, that can happen. And we haven't even dealt with the bathroom yet because no. the sink height, how do you get the wheelchair under the sink. Yeah, so, so sink height is one of the things. There's another uh, quite too common issue is that in the roll-in showers, there's a chair or a bench attached to the wall, and often the water controls are out of reach from that bench. You know, here's the other statistic that drives me a little nuts. And, and If 19% of the American public has a disability, then why are only 6% of hotel rooms handicapped accessible? Same thing with cruise ship cabins. You know, now I have to tell you something, and you're, gonna, you're probably going to hate me for this, but, but when I book a hotel room, I ask for one of those rooms if it's available. You know why? It's bigger. It, they, they actually give you more space. You know, and let's face it, this is the thing that drives me crazy about hotel design. Who says that a bathroom is a better bathroom in a hotel when it's got marble on the floor that you're going to slip and kill yourself, Right. So the reason why I want to book one of those rooms, they've got handrails everywhere. I can, I can actually not kill myself, and I'm not confined to a wheelchair. So there's this disconnect here between design and effect, right? Right. And it, you know, it's 19% that have a disability, but it's anyone that they travel with. Also, a recent business trip that I took, we couldn't find the accessibility information that we needed for a hotel, so we booked it. A, it took three hours for us to find an accessible hotel in Las Vegas, and all in three, Las Vegas, in Las which Vegas. has more hotel rooms than any other city in America. In, in Las Vegas, and all three of, of the rooms went to the hotel that provided us the accessibility information. Okay, you said three hours just to find one. We we wanted specific. We wanted photos of the the accessible bathroom. 
that was the that was the big accessibility. Okay, carrier. now you've, you've touched on another pet peeve of mine. If you go online to make a reservation, every hotel photo that they show you is garbage. It's it's shot with the widest angle lens, right? It makes you think you're staying in in you know a palatial suite, and when you get there, the room is so small you have to go outside to change your mind. That's an old vaudeville joke, but you. <laughs> but the thing is. Why wouldn't they make that information access the information accessible? Because people will make choices that are you know that are important choices based on that. Right, it's photos and it's measurements. So uh, on the hotel websites, it should not just say, "Hey, there's a, a wide bathroom door." It should say the measurement of the bathroom door and the bed height. Because nobody knows the width of your wheelchair more than you. Right, right, right. And which brings me up to airlines now. How many wheelchairs do airlines destroy every year? It's a growing number. Because the way that the planes are designed, I mean, with all due respect, sometimes I can't get down the aisle. And I'm an able-bodied person, right? How do you get a wheelchair down the aisle? You don't, right? Even in first class, it's not wide enough. So it's either a wheelchair manufacturing issue or it's an airline design issue or it's both. Yeah, and there is progress being made in design of uh, the the restraints so that someone can stay in their wheelchair on uh, uh, on a plane, but that is years away, but it is in progress. And you want it to be your wheelchair, not not an airline wheelchair Correct. that you're not familiar with, because you could get hurt on that. C- Correct, yeah. This wheelchair that I use is designed for me specifically, and even more so for people that uh, might not have used their upper extremities. It, they can develop pressure sores if they're put in another wheelchair. All right, so here's my question. Here you are in Rwanda, okay? You had to fly here. From where? From Austin. Okay. So did your wheelchair fly with you in the cabin, or did you have a stow it? It, it went below. On some of the planes they offered to put it on board, it has, my wheelchair is a rigid, what's called a rigid chair. It has to come apart. They offered, a, I haven't had a problem with it being lost or, or damaged. Uh, one of my big pet peeves is when the disabled assistance that brings me from my wheelchair to my seat using something very small called an aisle chair, when it doesn't show up on time, I'm the last one to get to get on board oh instead boy. of the first one, and every eye on the plane is on me, and it's All just right. not a comfortable feeling. Well, now I'm going to tell you one of the reasons why you might be last getting on board. Are you ready? It's the scam use of wheelchairs by passengers. Under the rules right now, okay? Now, we're si- this is radio, but I'm sitting here, but I can stand up. You're sitting here. You're not going to stand up. If I'm going to go to the airport and I want to board first, if I want to check in first, if I want to go through security first, if I want to board first, all I have to do is ask for wheelchair assistance. And now somebody's dedicated to get me from the car to the counter. So there I am, right? Now I go right through security, right? I go right on the plane. And you know what the flight attendants call these flights? Miracle flights. Because when the plane lands, I can walk. When the plane lands, I can run. Um, you know what one of the, <laughs> the gate agents told me? I'm sorry, everybody, but I'm going to tell you. Every time they see this happen, they say, well, there goes Jetway Jesus. I mean, but, uh, but it's a scam. And, I understand, I mean, and, and, and the, thing that you, the reason why you know it's a scam is because the fact that you got a wheelchair to board the flight means they've already alerted your, your arriving airport, and they have wheelchairs waiting, and these people are still waiting as people are going running by them. There's got to be a better way to, to do this so that people who actually need the help get it. Yeah, it, it is a c- concern, and uh, unfortunately what happens is the, the people that need it, uh, they, they don't get it. And the travel businesses, they, 
start to say, okay, well, we don't want to accommodate it. It happened with amusement park passes at, at Disney. Is it got abused and it really hurt uh, the disabled community. And what's what's the solution? <laughs> bring a doctor's note. I mean, what? It, it, it's difficult. I, I think it needs to be looked at at a, a, a holistic uh, approach of why are are these people. Is, is the travel experience so bad that they have to fake a disability? My thanks to John. A few decades ago, these were the stories that I covered in depth, and I also met many of the perpetrators. Author John Wigger tells their stories in a fascinating new book, The Hijacking of American Flight 119, how D.B. Cooper inspired a skyjacking craze and the FBI's battle to stop it. Talk about a piece of American history and the hijacking mentality. Professor, thank you for joining us. Yes, wonderful to be with you. You know, I go back to that day in November of 1971. I was a correspondent for Newsweek, and uh, that started the wildest goose chase of all time, the hijacking of the Northwest Airlines flight in the Pacific Northwest, by somebody whose manifested name was D.B. Cooper, who, uh, who lowered the rear, the rear boarding stairs of a Boeing 727 somewhere over the Pacific Northwest, uh, wearing a parachute, carrying $200,000 in small bills, and disappeared into the night, never to be seen again. That alone has inspired so many books, a few movies, and of course, a mythology that is still with us today, right? No, that's correct. Um, he became uh, something of a pop cultural hero at the time and has continued to be so to this day. And of course, while he has never been found, uh, there's been some shredded, mildewed uh, $20 bills found in the, near the Columbia River, I believe. But other than that, the, it's still an open case. I think that's really what fascinates people about Cooper. Um, he wasn't the only parachute hijacker, not the only hijacker to jump out of a plane, but he was the only one who was never caught. Well, let's talk about the other ones, because uh, that, that's somewhat news to me, too. You know, I, I will tell you this story, John. Uh, back in the late 70s, I went down to Havana, and I was on a mission to find mm -hmm. all the hijackers. Um, and guess what? I found them. In those days, Fidel Castro didn't return them. In those days, he kept them, and he, and he found an old hotel on a, off a side street in Havana, which got the nickname as the Hijack Hotel, because that's where he put all these guys. Now, can you imagine all of them sitting around in, in one room every morning having breakfast? What were they talking about, right? Well, so I, I went down there, and sure enough, I met with a couple of them, and the conversations were so pathetic. One guy, I'd, I'd say to one guy, well, so tell me about your hijacking. And, and he said, well, I, I wanted to go to Algeria. And the next guy looked at him and said, you're such an idiot. Why would you hijack a DC-9 to Algeria? You know it can't make Algeria. He said, well, I didn't know. I mean, I mean we were dealing with some pretty lost souls down there. In later years, as you know, uh, the Castro government made a decision that they would return all the hijackers immediately to stand trial back in the U.S. But tell me about the people who, who, who parachuted out. Yes, so there were um, five hijackers who actually jumped um, after D.B. Cooper. They were all inspired in some way by Cooper. Um, they were all grouped into about a six-month period from November 1971 to June of 1972. 
um, they were all caught. But, you know, in many ways, their, uh, their hijackings were more daring, more complicated um, uh, than Cooper's itself. And that, bring, um, and, that brings simply, up, and that brings up American Airlines Flight 119, because that guy, what, commandeered a flight from St. Louis with a machine gun. He got, what, over $500,000 in ransom money, and he parachuted over Indiana. Wow. And, and he got caught. He did eventually, but it took the, the FBI about a week to track him down. <laughs> <laughs> Wild. Wild. But so I guess the question is, for that craze that started— and everybody doing copycats, um, they all had different motives, didn't they? Uh, some were political. Most were not. No, the, especially the parachute hijackers were, were decidedly not political. Um, they were uh, what you might think of as ransom hijackings, extortion, um, at least ostensibly it was for the money. Um, some of them were Vietnam veterans who uh, came back from the war uh, uh really at a loss for what to do with their lives. Um, but it was, it was not uh, mostly political. Wow. And then, of course, you had the truly crazy people, right? The guy with a, with a, what, with a, with a pillowcase over his head? Yeah, Rob Hetty, uh, one of the uh, parachute hijackers, um, hijacked a 727 in Reno, Nevada, um, Reno was known as hijackers heaven because the security was so light. This was Rob Hetty. He had come back from Vietnam, really at a loss for uh, what had happened to him and what to do with his life. And he ended up hijacking a plane in Reno, which was known as hijackers heaven because the security was so light. He jumped over the three foot high perimeter fence, ran across the apron with a pillowcase over his head with two eye holes cut out. And a 357 Magnum in one hand and a parachute in the other. He hadn't bothered to buy a ticket. He just ran <laughs> to the upstairs you know, of a Boeing 727 and hijacked the plane. By the way, you mentioned the Boeing 727. Here's a little-known fact for trivia guys like me, otherwise known as Av Geeks. There's something when when the 727 was still flying, and most of them are no longer flying in commercial service in the world. They're certainly no longer flying in this country. But when they did, as a result of the DB Cooper hijacking. Boeing inserted on all the 727s called a DB Cooper switch. And the DB Cooper switch was placed on the tail of the plane. And it was activated actually by the wind. And when the plane was moving through the sky, the switch went into the downward position and then made it impossible for anybody to activate the aft stairs from the inside of the plane. So you could no longer lower the, the, the stairs in flight and literally walk down the plane and jump out. So if somebody was hijacking a 727, it was specifically because I would guess, John, that they saw what D.B. Cooper did. No, exactly. Um, the 727 was the uh, uh, most widely commercial, uh, commercially used jet at the time that had those aft stairs at least aft stairs that were easily accessible. Some other planes had them, but they weren't uh, as commonly used or, or as uh, uh, accessible. And that's, and that's the D.B. Cooper switch. If you, if you ever go to some from third world countries where they're still flying the 727 in commercial passenger service, look at the back of the plane. You'll see a little bit of a flap on that side of the plane. That's the D.B. Cooper switch. Of all the hijackings, yeah, of all the hijackings that you write about in this book, which one to you was the most ludicrous, or let's let's turn the tables, which one was the scariest? Well, I don't know about scariest, but um, Martin McNally's hijacking of 
American 119 was certainly the craziest of the bunch um, and went on the longest. It took the FBI about a week to finally track McNally down. Um, he hijacked the plane in St. Louis on its way. Well, it had taken off from St. Louis on its way to Tulsa, asked for a little over a half a million dollars. Um, they went back to St. Louis, and while they were on the ground, um, a guy who had been watching the hijacking on television and listening to it uh, on the radio um, was across the street at an airport bar and decided that uh, in the middle of the night he was going to put an end to it. Got in his wife's Cadillac, um, rammed his way through the perimeter fence, and then as the plane was preparing to take off um, with McNally and the cash and, and the crew on board, um, he drove down the runway and rammed the nose gear of the plane at about 90 miles an hour. Oh, my God. Which then, yeah, which then meant they had to switch to a separate plane, um, which is the one that McNally actually parachuted from. Um, he jumped at 10,000 feet at 320 miles an hour. He had never parachuted before. The FBI only gave him a front reserve chute, a small front reserve chute. But he didn't know enough about parachuting to know that that was all he had. Um, and he landed safely. Uh, uh, landed uh, um, without serious injury, but he lost the money on the way down. Whoops. <laughs> um, so, yes. He hadn't securely tied it to his waist, um, and when the parachute opened, the jerk of the parachute opening uh, tore the money bag away with a half million dollars in cash. Okay, i got to ask the obvious question. Where'd the bag end up? Well, it ended up in a farmer's field. Um, so a few days later, a farmer uh, thought he saw a groundhog in his soybeans and went out, and it was the bag of cash. And, and, and did he turn it in? He did, yes. Um, although a lot of his neighbors later told him he should have kept it. <laughs> <laughs> would you, hey, John, would you have kept it? Well, you know, he would have gotten caught, so uh, probably wouldn't have been the best idea. Well, wait a second. Was the money marked? Um, it wasn't marked, no. Um, they had recorded the serial numbers, but uh, yeah, I guess in that sense, uh, no, it was not marked. Aha. Uh -huh. See, John, I, 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 another way of looking at it now. I don't know. You know, I, I, that's always the age-old question. If you find a, a bag of money in the field, what do you do with it? And if it's got yes. $502,000 in it, it gives, you, it gives you reason for thought. <laughs> yeah, especially at the time, that was, you know, in today's money, well over $2 million. Oof, that's right. So basically, hijacking money invested properly over 20 years. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> my thanks to John Wigger, to John Sage, and to James Thornton. And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news, just log on to petergreenberg.com. The Ion Travel Podcast is produced by Amanda Morris and Anthony Protis Chung. For more content from Peter Greenberg and the Ion Travel team, visit petergreenberg.com. Ion Travel is a production of CBS News Radio. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. You know how to book flights and hotels. 
all you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free, starting May 1st with a 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts.